So this is a bonus lecture on Benita Lawrence's article, Gender, Race, and the Regulation of Native Identity in Canada and the United States, an overview. So this lecture will only be um, one single lecture and not, not too full, not, not a full lecture. And um, a, a student requested this, which is just the most exciting thing to hear as a teacher that um, someone's interested in learning about the readings. And um, my mom has also been listening to the lectures and I was, I was disappointed that we weren't gonna talk about this one, so I'm happy to do it. So I'll start with a little bit, information, a little bit of information about Benita. So one very cool thing is Benita Lawrence is, I'm sorry I called her Benita, that, was, um, that always bugs me when people use You'll notice that it happens with uh, with women philosophers. They people use the first names, and that uh, I don't like that. So I'm sorry. So, so Lawrence is a professor at York University, which is very awesome. Uh, Benita Lawrence is Micmac. She teaches in Indigenous Studies at York University. Her research and publications focus primarily on urban non-status and Métis identities, federally unrecognized Aboriginal communities, and Indigenous justice. She is the author of Fractured Homeland, Federal Recognition, and Algonquin Identity in Ontario, and Real, in quotes, Indians and Others, Mixed Blood Urban Native People and Indigenous Nationhood, she is also the author of, I'm sorry, I'm really going to butcher this, um, these words, Nindla Owi in Clan, Micmac Sojourns in England, a, a historical novel spanning 500 years of Micmac history, both in the Atlantic, Can in, in the Canadian Atlantic and in London. So let's... Um, dive into the article. So in this article, Lawrence talks about what it means or how um, First Nations identities have been regulated in both Canada and the United States. And she describes this in terms of a discourse, which is, um, I think, a really interesting way to think about how um, the regulation of identities <clears throat> like this one, which is um, regulated by government statutes, is understood. So she says um, that the effect of these regulatory regimes might best be understood in terms of a discourse, and she says in the sense that Foucault used the term which is that a way of seeing life is produced and reproduced by rules, systems, and procedures. So there's, you might think about this as a sort of um, feedback loop that happens. And, and this is something that Lawrence describes throughout the article, where the Canadian um, colonial government created these uh, rules legislated um, quote-unquote Indianness 
And what happened was over centuries, a sort of feedback between real First Nations people and this regulation creates, um, internalizes these identities as well. <clears throat> so you can, that, that might be one way to think about what it means for the effect of regulatory regimes to be a discourse, kind of the way it can go, it goes back and forth, right? It's absorbed by First Nations people because it's imposed on them for uh, hundreds of years and then becomes internalized and then then it influences the continued regulation. So this is something that Benita Lawrence talks about in the context of the sexism that was imposed on First, First Na Nations people by these regulations. That becomes internalized and then as the centuries goes on, it changes the discussion, right? Suddenly, these generations of First Nations people have been excluded from their community because these regulations. And then that starts to become the way um, I, First Nations identities are understood by even their own people or, or just these things become internalized. And that might shape the way future regulation happens. So she talks about, you know, the later to fix this patriarchal, sexist um, way that indigenous identities were regulated. The government um, changed it sort of with Bill C-31. But there was pushback from the community because, you know, this impacted these communities and you know one thing Lawrence mentions is once again even though it was it's good that um, that indigenous or First Nations women are no are not being excluded from um, being identified as First Nation under these uh, statutes it still is about it still is about the colonial government regulating identities. Um, okay, so Lawrence says that the, so the, the regulatory regime in Canada is called the Indian Act. And she says it provides ways of understanding native identity, organizing a conceptual framework. And this conceptual framework has shaped contemporary Native life in ways that are now so familiar as to almost seem, quote, natural. And she points out that to think about the Indian Act merely as a set of policies, a set of bad policies that we need to get rid of, or even if you think of the Indian Act as a, as a genocidal scheme, as attempted um, genocide that should we should get rid of or that we should just not believe in that we should think is garbage that downplays how this regulatory scheme these rules these colonial 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 government 
imposed rules regulating Native identity also produces something, ch changes something, changes something significantly that can't just be undone by undoing the regulations that hundreds of years of of telling people what first nation identity is has an impact on how first nation on how first nation identity is experienced and understood and i mean there's just uh, Lauren, Lawrence talks about lots of ways in which this has ch ch actually changed things in ways that can't be un undone just by repealing the legislation. She says, to speak of how pervasively the Indian Act in Canada or federal Indian legislation in the U.S. has permeated the ways in which Native peoples think of themselves is not, this is important, is not to deny Native people the agency to move beyond its logic, nor does it suggest that traditional ways of understanding self in relation to other people and the land have been entirely erased. But identity is not neutral, passive, or fixed. It's not just individual. It's also relational. It's also about, it's, it also develops in response and relation to how other people see themselves and how other people see you. And these, all these things have been greatly impacted by um, government regulation. So Lawrence writes, contemporary native identity therefore exists in an uneasy balance between concepts of generic quote unquote Indianness as imposed through these through these um, regulations as an imposed racial identity and of specific tribal identity as one's indigenous nationhood. And that, I mean, that's a really interesting um, point that Lawrence makes as well about here's a group of people who were many distinct groups of people and then the colonial government came along and not, oh, and one part of this imposing of a single um, Indian, quote-unquote, Indian identity was to erase all of these distinct nations that existed on this land before the colonial government arrived. So um, one thing that Lawrence points out is just to say a little something about uh, feminist ideology. And she writes, I take very seriously the warning of Mohawk scholar Patricia Montour Angus that for Native women in Canada, feminist as an ideology remains colonial. 
On the other hand, she writes, I also agree with writers such as Paula Gunn Allen, Languna Pueblo, and Janice Acus, Cree Metis Solto, who explore how colonization has always been a gendered process and how the church in particular has very specifically attacked the social status of native women as a way of undermining the power of native societies in general. So then we get into the history of the, the section on the history of the Indian Act. So the Indian Act in Canada is what controls the quote, status Indian, or the category of um, quote unquote Indian persons. And this is important because um, in, in the, these regulations, if someone has, someone is deemed to be, have First Nation status, according to these regulations, it comes with certain responsibilities that the government has to them. And um, it's a category that comes with, uh, yes, a certain, it, it describes a certain relationship between the government and indigenous people. So, you know, there can be important things that turn on being found to be status or non-status. And one of the things that Lawrence talks about in this article is being able to live on reserve, which means being able to live in your community. So if you're found, if you were found to be non-status, then you were not allowed to live on, to live with your community. And in Canada, to have status, you need to prove that you're related through the male line to individuals who are already status. So this is the, um, the deep sexism in this. I mean, and obviously there's lots of this, these um, regulations are also very racist. But interestingly, one of the things Lawrence talks about is the, the sexism in the Indian Act um, whereas in the U.S., it's primarily racist. <laughs> um, so Lawrence writes, in essence, by 1985, the Indian Act rendered two-thirds of all Native people in Canada landless. Because as we were saying, if you were status, then the government owed you land, if you were not and other things, if you were not status, then the government didn't owe you those things. And if you're interested in learning more about the Indian Act, it's uh, you can find it online. Just Google Indian Act Canada, and it will come up, and you can see all the kinds of things. So, for example, there's um, reserves. There's things about. Um, um, loans, there's things about treaty money, there's particular legal rights, um, there's things about schools, so you can learn more, you're welcome to read through that if it, if you're interested. Um, so Lawrence notes that there was some nation-to-nation -nation relationship with the 
British when the British government were responsible for Indian affairs from 1763 to 1860. But during this time, white set, the white settler, the colonial white settler population of the Canadian colonies multiplied. And, you know, I mean, horrible... I mean, genocidal things happened, like the deliberate introduction of devastating diseases. And when the, when the British transferred control to the Canadian, to Canada, in 1860, this nation-to-nation relationship was abandoned. So the next section is called Gender Discrimination in the Indian Act and the Creation of the Non-Status in, uh, Indian. So in 1869, an act called Gradual Enfranchisement Act uh, stated that any Indian woman who married a white man lost her Indian status and any right to banned membership, while at the same time giving Indian status to white women who married status Indians. And, um, you know, Lawrence talks about the fact that um, that developing settlements that uh, on other people's land, she says, generally involves being obsessed with maintaining colonial control and of rigidly asserting difference in order to develop and maintain white social solidarity and cohesion. So she, Lawrence points out that the very existence of, of colonial settler societies is predicated on maintaining a racial apartheid on emphasizing right, white different, on emphasizing racial difference or white difference, um, on maintaining white superiority and uh, and native inferiority. Then in 1985, a bill was passed, Bill C31, which gave women who had lost their status under um, the Indian Act and the um, gradual Enfranchisement Act back their status. So um, Lawrence writes that in 1985, when Bill C-31 was passed, there were only 35, there were only 350,000 status Indians left in Canada. And approximately 100,000 individuals regained their status because of Bill C-31 by 1995. But as Lawrence points out, the damage had been caused demographically and culturally by the loss of status of so many Native women for a century prior to 1985. And this damage is incalculable. So the next section is on racial restrictions in the Indian Act. So also in the Gradual Enfranchisement Act of 1869, there was a blood quantum requirement, which is the requirement that Lawrence tells us is um, used in the U.S. And 
there was a very interesting point made in this article about the qu the blood quantum requirement. So the blood the blood quantum requirement is just this idea that you have to have a certain amount of quote First Nation blood in order to qualify um, as a status. But one of the things is that was pointed out in this article is as generations go on, there's just, of course, mixing happens between people and the blood quantum will just go down over time. It would be real. I mean, you'd have to regulate who people had children with in a in a really bizarre way to ensure that it didn't. And so one issue, I mean, there's so many problems with the blood quantum thing. I mean, with the regulation of identity itself, but the blood quantum uh, way of doing it, it's pointed out in this article, will just eventually inevitably lead to the, the on paper extinction of First Nations people. So the blood quantum requirement was added uh, for the first time in the Gradual Enfranchisement Act to the definition of, uh, quote, Indian. And um, Lawrence also tells us that the numbered treaties, so Canada um, also has, what, or has, has treaties that have various numbers with First Nations peoples across Canada, and these numbered treaties were crucial projects of forcibly identifying and segregating um, Indians from the group that was called quote-unquote half-breeds, which is like a Harry Pot a horrible Lord Voldemort Harry Potter word. And um, this is totally regardless of how individuals see themselves. So the next section is the implications of the Indian Act division. And Lawrence says, you know, if, the, if this history clarifies anything, it's that in Canada, both Indian and Métis identity have been shaped to a phenomenal extent by discriminatory legislation under the Indian Act. And this has just, um, just excluded huge groups of people from their legal rights and access to land uh, because of this rigidity with racial categories created and maintained under the Indian Act and has has led to this issue of inherent cult this idea of inherent cultural difference that's the product of racial mi mixing that somehow racial mixing leads to some kind of significant inherent cultural difference. Um, so Lawrence says, look, the fact is that while these divisions between Métis and First Nations were created, I mean, this, this idea that there is a difference itself was created and imposed by the Indian Act in a very artificial manner they have nevertheless become real differences in experiences. So this on paper, you know, um, disconnected from people's experience of identity 
creation of identity was then then creates real differences in people's experiences in where they can where they can live in the community they can are are allowed to identify with um and cultures that they can be a part of and i mean yeah and that and that just continues for generations so the next section redefining indianness under bill c31 is about um how so two women Jeanette Corbier-Laval and Yvonne Bedard challenged the discriminatory sections of the Indian Act at the Supreme Court of Canada, but the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that it didn't discriminate against First Nations women who married non-quote-unquote non-Indian men because in losing their status, they gained the legal rights of white women. So for that reason, it was not discriminatory. That was 1971. Then Sandra Lovelace took her case to the UN Human Rights Committee and won in 1981. And Canada was found to be in violation of the International Covenant on Political and Civil Rights. And when when you take something to an international court, it's not binding on Canadian courts. So Canada doesn't have to follow these decisions. But they're kind of, um, they're more political, so it looks really bad, and um, it can help put political pressure on Canada to do something. So in response to this, um, Bill C-31 was created, which, um, as we know, changed some of these, changed some of these um, sexist provisions, but obvious but as lawrence points out inequalities had already been created by the indian act and some people had been empowered by this these regulations and other people like first nations women had been um had been uh, discriminated against and had lost status because of these things but there are complicated there are um, op- quote unquote opening up native identity in these directions was once again something communities didn't have control over. So once again, um, regulation of identities being imposed um, on communities by the government, and um, and just completely changing these communities in the st- stroke of a pen after you know centuries of um, it being different. So Lawrence writes, gender has thus been crucial to, to determining not only who has been able to stay in native communities, but who has been called, quote, mixed blood and externalized as such. These beliefs are only rendered more powerful by the strongly protectionist attitudes towards preserving native cultures as it is lived on reserves at present where outsiders may be seen as profoundly threatening to community identities because out- outsider presence is has been threatening. The outsider president presence has been attempting to erase <laughs> these identities. So that that fear is like makes just it that fear is real. Um 
I'm going to skip over the section on the U.S. You can read that. It's a couple um, pages, but we're just, I'm just going to try to wrap up. So in the States, it's um, similar, but based on blood quantum. And um, I mean, Lawrence talks about just all the incredibly racist ways that this idea of blood quantum was trying to discover. And one thing I want to talk about before we go is the way that um, the way that these regulations impose um, impose tradition um, on First Nations communities. So you know there was Lawrence talked a lot about the way that in court First Nations proved they were quote authentic. Um, First Nations community was by basically having to, their community has to stand still and still practice things and um, be they were hundreds of years ago as if they can't also evolve and change over time like other communities do. That somehow um, evolving over time or the inevitable mixing of cultures over time is proof that they, they are no longer authentic First Nations um, communities. Which, if, I mean, if you've gone traveling, you, you see some of this, um, this happening in tourist spots around the world where you see local people there's this it's like tourists expect um expect these traditional ways to be performed for them in a weird um in a weird so many weird things in the world to think about it so i'll just um finish finish up so she talks about comparing the choices offered by colonial regulation of indianness the highly patriarchal system of the Indian Act with its covert regulation of blood quantum versus the apparently gender-neutral systems of blood quantum in the U.S. that is overtly race-based. So Lawrence writes, we see that one system, Canada, generates high levels of sexism along with racism, while the other generates high levels of racism and, I'm sure, also sexism. So the last section is um, reframing pre-colonial identities in a post-colonial um, world. So she writes, for generations in both Canada and the US, a narrow but powerful sense of native identity has been fueled by the profound gap between the lived experiences of the majority of native people and the increasingly exclusive intellectual enclaves where most theory on identity is produced. Given such high demands from all quarters for so-called authenticity to engage openly in work that challenges essentialist views and risks blurring the set boundaries between native people and non-native people appears dangerous. Western imagination has painted the world as populated by endangered authenticities. It is important for native people 
and colonial settlers to critically question common sense notions about authentic nativeness, as well as ways of thinking about nationhood and tradition that suggest that they can emerge unscathed from centuries of colonialization and be immediately and easily accessible to us. And one line that Lawrence has that really stood out to me was this line about that there's no risk-free space in which to explore native identities because because the regulation of native identity and the erasure of native identity is a real way that that over centuries the genocide of these these people and this and these many diverse communities and um and groups has been has been erased and regulated and so it's not a risk-free thing to try to explore critically these things and that's the end of our benita lawrence uh lecture and i'll see you next week